Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit BiteRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Stella Carhart, and we'll be talking about her new book, Discovering Twins, No Secret is Safe Forever. Stella Carhart stuns readers with a haunting journey through family secrets in this striking debut book. Part memoir and part historical fiction, Stella's account offers an unforgettable mixture of anecdotes, personal memories, genealogy records, and preserved correspondence, all skillfully combined into a moving chronicle of her family's experience of the Holocaust. The story, she writes, must continue to be told to all existing and future generations. She recounts her parents' upbringing in Holland during the Second World War, as their later and well as their later immigration to Canada, but her focus is on the Jewish family members who were lost and those left behind. While Stella never shies away from shocking details, she highlights the silver lining of stumbling across her family's confidences, including finally being able to connect with a distant relative who survived. She leaves readers with a gut-wrenching insight how grievous that humans, generally, seem to be unable to evolve beyond being the hunter, the hunted, or the watcher. And anyone intrigued by family histories and uncompromising historical fiction will discover a narrative to remember. For more information, you can visit Stella's website, which is Stella Terhart. Dot com and that's s t e l l a t e r h a r t dot com. Hey, with that, I'd like to welcome Stella to the show. Good day, Stella. Good afternoon, Robert, and thank you for having me on your show, and thank you for that introduction. Very kind. It's a great honor and privilege to be speaking with you today. And today, of course, is. Holocaust Remembrance Day, January 27th, so our interview and chat is very timely. It is. It certainly is. And, you know, also, um, you know, in, in the introduction I mentioned, you know, that you indicate that, you know, this is a story that really needs to be told to all existing and future generations. And, and you know, I just kind of want to ask you about that. I am stunned at how much the... Uh, gen, you know, the younger generations um, are unaware of, of it. Um, is, is it just me, or, or is that that's the case? And, and what, what's your, your view about that? No, you're exactly right, Robert. And how do they know if it's not taught to them? I don't think that world history is as much of an emphasis in the educational system 
as maybe it was in the past or as it most definitely should be. You know, I think the focus is perhaps on the history that's happening right now and world events that are happening right now, which, of course, are, are important. They are maybe more relatable to young people especially. But if we don't to educate what's happened to humanity in the past, we all know the expression that we're doomed for it to happen again. No, so you're absolutely right in your observation. Young people do not seem to be as aware and we can only assume that that's because it's not taught to them in relatable and meaningful ways. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, and I was, <laughs> it seems like I'm constantly stunned anymore by, by what's going on around here. But, uh, you know, the, there was, I believe it was in Texas, one school district wanted to talk about the good, you know, the, the other side of the Holocaust. And I was, and I was, I was at a loss for words, like I am right now. It's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How can such a concept even exist, right? Yeah. You can only look at history from a factual, actual standpoint, ideally from eyewitnesses, from people who lived it, from their historical records written at the time. And what I've done in, in my book, Discovering Twins, is take the history of the time and put it in a more relatable fashion, particularly for either people who have never heard or know very little about World War II in Europe, the Holocaust, uh, those, you know, hearing it for the first time, or even for older people who may have forgotten or didn't know very much or never bothered really to look it up. So this is a, 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 a lot of stories in the book that, people can relate to, and that's what I've been told by readers who have contacted me, is that the book is not just, you know, in your face with horrible statistics, that's not the focus. The focus is, look at these people, these how, this is how they lived before, this is what happens to them through no fault of their own, and this is the end result of that. All done with stories, with uh, um, pictures. I include pictures of my family who were lost, of the very few photographs that I could that I could find, as well as interweaving it with life. My life when I was a little girl, and you know, my mother who had this very hidden Jewish background that she never told anybody. Weaving all these into stories around actual facts and statistics from from World War II. I've had young people tell me that they could relate to the stories about people their age that I have in the book, as opposed to something that's very textbook-like, Robert. I mean, you've read them, I've read them. You can't stick with them if it's just statistics and dates and records. That doesn't really uh, resonate with people the same way that a story does. We all know that tell me a story means that people want to hear a story that then they can relate to and and remember. So that's how I've written the book, and that's how the Holocaust is presented in my book. Yeah, yeah, you indicate that um, you blur the line between the the historical fiction, nonfiction, memoir, and biography, and one of the things I like is at the very end of your book, you had a uh, just a real short section called "Blurring the Lines," where you kind of went through and identified, you know, what were facts and and what was, you know, then by default fiction. So, um, so can 
I mean, is it the idea of just for presentation sake and, and um, maybe better engagement with the reader that, that you chose to blur the line? Exactly. Uh, exactly. So when you're reading it, and I had the reason why I included that little bit at the end was the editors I was working with and the beta readers going, you know, we couldn't tell what was historical fiction and what was actually coming from, from, from true stories. So, and that was very intentional, very intentional, which is why at the end, little tiny things that people ask me about, yep, that actually happened. There's a story of my mom mm -hmm. in the Netherlands. By 1944, the Netherlands had been cut off from food supplies. Uh, Germans, the, the, the Nazis had bombed the railroad lines into Amsterdam and no food could get in. Nothing could get out. It, uh, it was all cut off. And so uh, Amsterdam was starving. And by this time, the Jewish people had all been deported off to Auschwitz and Sobibor. But it didn't mean that the rest of Holland wasn't also suffering. So my my grandfather, who was a construction um, construction manager, gave my mother this coil of rope and said, I want you to go out into the countryside and trade it for food, which is what people in Amsterdam were, were doing. They would walk into the countryside with candlesticks and pillows and try to find a farm and come home with, you know, some, some vegetables or something. So here goes my mother on a bicycle with no rubber tires, because rubber was long since taken for the war effort, with this wrapped in this enormous, stinky coil of rope and she goes out into, into the farms and she eventually finds a farmer who gives her a rooster and what is the farmer ties this live rooster in a burlap sack on her back and then she has to go back into Amsterdam about an hour long bicycle trip with this live rooster you know rising on her back and so that's a, a very true story but when you read it you go this couldn't possibly have happened so in the blurring the lines I say yes that was a very real rooster. So that's just an example of uh, a story that a reader might read and go, did that actually happen? But yes, it did. So that's why I have that section at the back. Because readers ask me about, did this happen? Did this happen? Where did this come from? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think it's a testament to your writing <laughs> that it is difficult to identify, you know, where one starts and one ends. So, um, yeah, that's, a, again, a testament to your writing skills. Um, now, you mentioned that um, your mother had, had kept the Jewish background hidden or secret. So can you tell us about um, about the secret and, and how it, you know, came to be known? Absolutely, Robert, and that's a big theme that runs through through the book. So my, my grandmother, my mother's mother, was Jewish. Her family had been Jewish for generations. They'd lived in Holland for over 400 years. And she came from a large family of nine brothers and sisters who all married in the Jewish community, who were all married with children of their own. But my grandmother married an Italian. And so when you had a mixed marriage, the Nazis did not pick you first. You had some protection by virtue of the mixed marriage because, of course, in a patriarchal society, everything is follows the, the father. Everything follows the husband. So as a result of my grandmother's Italian husband, 
my mother and her brothers and sisters had some level of protection. My grandmother still had to wear the yellow Star of David, as did my oldest aunt and my oldest uncle, but because my mother was 12 at the time, she didn't have to. And by the time she was old enough to have to wear a Jewish star, my grandfather had gotten false identification papers for the family. So this was a secret that my mother carried with her into her adulthood after the war was over. She immigrated from the Netherlands to Canada, and she told no one. She was terrified that anyone would find out. It was still very raw, of course. My grandmother was the only one of her family who survived. Her entire family was wiped out. She had two uncles. She, she had two first cousins, my uncles, two first cousins who survived. But I discovered 10 and then 100 and then 500 and then Robert over 1,000 relatives who were deported and taken and lost in Auschwitz, Sobibor, and elsewhere. So you can imagine that my mother's trauma and fear of this happening again because anti-Semitism did not retreat with the Germans. It's alive and well. So she, this is a secret she carried. And, and she eventually, I kind of find I found out in the book, talks about how I tripped over it and how I found out. But she, my whole life, you know, shaking her finger at me, don't you tell anyone, don't you tell anyone. But now my mother's gone, and here I am telling everyone, because it's a story that still needs to be told. Yeah, yeah, and, and that fear that she felt really needs to be uh, transformed, you know, and, you know, to hope, really, you know, to... Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, to shift that energy. Um, now, one of the things that um, you, you talk about, oh, um, I did want to mention that I, I did enjoy your pictures that, and that you included that one picture of your, your grandmother's Star of David badge. I thought, you know, just looking at that, I mean, it just uh, makes you wonder. You know, I, I think it can kind of take you back or, or turn, transport you in a way. So anyway, it was... I thought that was interesting. That's something I had never seen before. And the actual one, I was in Australia, and my Uncle Joe, my mother's youngest brother, he had it. He had it. There it was in his house, and that's where I got I took a picture of it. So, I mean, do you want to talk about bringing and driving something home? That's an undeniable show of evidence of that whole, just by looking at that one that that one tangible symbol, symbol mm -hmm. it, it's it's almost beyond words because of what it represents. It does, yeah, you know, and that's kind of the feeling that I had when when I saw it, and you know, it, um, it, it I think it's just a, a a brutal reminder of uh, man's inhumanity, you know, and and that. I mean, I don't know. I, I just, it can happen again. And, and like you say, you know, we, we really need to do what we can to educate so that it doesn't. That's right. It, it, absolutely. 
And yet one of the things, and I do touch upon this a little bit at the end of the book, is, you know, people can get tired of hearing, oh, yes, I know it was horrible. Yes, I know millions of people died. And people can get tired of hearing it if it's in their face too much, which is why mm-hmm. I've presented it in a very different way. You know, there are spots in the book that are funny. Uh, there's places where it's endearing, places where, you know, you'll laugh, you'll cry, uh, you'll be happy, you'll mourn. So this is what we are all about as people. We have emotions. We react to things. And that's why the whole book is not just, you know, smashing people over the head with statistics about how horrible it was. It is every every ex- human experience sort of wrapped up in a little in little tidbits to experience. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and like you say, you know, presenting it in a story format, I think, um, that gets the reader more engaged, you know. And even yeah. if recognize, I mean, recognizing that, you know, some of it is fact, some is fiction, some, you know, is blurred, you know, that really doesn't matter, you know, when it comes to, to from a reader's perspective. It doesn't really matter as long as they, um, are, you know, they're engaged, I mean, for lack of a better word, you know, that, that they um, kind of enjoy what they're reading or what they're reading, they can see. whatever stimulates them, that, that, that is kind of what, um, what it would do. Yes, exactly. I had one lady who read it who didn't quite she wanted to look up what I was saying directly, which is fantastic, and she did. She researched some of the things that I mentioned or that I talk about, and she just said, wow, I had no idea. And even while I was writing the book, you know, I was doing tons of research in order to make sure the historical fiction was accurate. I had no idea. I, I, who was to know that if you were a Jewish person in Europe during the Nazi occupation couldn't walk on the sunny side of the street. You couldn't walk on the sunny side. Who comes up with stupid stuff like that? (laughs) And why? You know? Yeah. There's all these bizarre restrictions, and it was simply to alienate and remove this entire section of society out of their communities, isolate them, and then physically remove them. Um, So... Uh, I learned so much, and I hope that people who read the book will also learn facts that they would have never heard before, that they've never thought of before. And I present a lot yeah. of those there, and I've had people call me on them and <laughs> check them out, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, that fact-checking is fine. You know, and you admit in the book exactly, you know, that, I mean, there are facts and there's fiction and there's that blurry aspect. You know, so, you know, having someone, I mean, talk about engagement, having someone go through the effort of checking you, you know, checking the dates and that kind of thing, I think shows um, uh, an active curiosity that I think is, yeah. you know, for a book to, 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 a book to ignite is a pretty darn good thing. I thought so, you know, I mean, and uh, she came back and she even told me, I checked up on it, and, and I learned even more than what you had written there, which is, you know, which I was, I was really pleased about that. It showed interaction, it showed, like you say, curiosity, 
and fact-checking, I'm all about it. You know, that's just fine. So uh, these facts, they exist, but they're so buried, Robert. You can find almost anything you want about anything, anywhere, anytime, but it takes a lot of time to really dig deep and, and find what you're looking for. So, I mean, I've done it for four people. <laughs> They're welcome to check it out, but uh, I, I did so much fact-checking and, and research myself and found out so much that I had no idea about that wouldn't have been possible without the Internet as well. Yeah. What happened when the, when the war ended? The war ended, but the war didn't end. It took years for people to find their way from the concentration camps that were closed back to France or back to the Netherlands or back to wherever, you know, Denmark, wherever they had been taken from. They just didn't all happily go on a train and then show up within a week. And then, of course, the ones that didn't come back, their families searched for years. They would put up announcements in newspapers. Have you seen this person? This person is missing. We can't find this child. Have you? Can you help me find my parents? This went on for years after the end of the Second World War, and that's something that people really don't stop and think about either. So there's a, a, a lot of a lot of unknown details that I try to bring into these stories, so that people have a different perspective, maybe than what they've had before. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, and I, I guess it, it's that. Um, digging and that perspective and bringing things to light and raising awareness, those are the things that are going to, um, if you believe in the good nature of man, um, help, you know, help us move forward, you know, learning from, recognizing, you know, kind of what happened and also acting in ways that, um, that that won't happen again. But but right now it seems that there is uh, an increased um, focus on um, Nazi and Holocaust. And, you know, uh, like a couple of days ago, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. made that, that crazy comment about, you know, implying that Anne Frank would have had more freedom freedom hiding from the Nazis than she, um, than someone in the U.S. with vaccine mandates. I mean, it was just, like, totally off the wall. And after his wife condemned his comments, you know, he, you know, came back with a, sorry, I didn't mean to. But, you know, it's already out there. Um, you know, so, um, what, um, what is your view of, of this kind uh, of the heightened awareness, but but not in a good way. I mean, you know, not in a way of learning and hope, but rather in maybe admiration and fear. Well, the way that I feel about that, Robert, is that people will say things based on if you know a little, sometimes you say a lot, as opposed to knowing a lot and and saying a little, and. And that's what happened, I believe, with the, with the Kennedy comment. Uh, has he actually researched and, and, and read Anne Frank? Does, does he know what it was like for them and for others? I can't say, but obviously he knows something, but that doesn't give him the right to then think he knows it all or a lot or anyone else for that matter. 
Uh, and, and, you know, people, people will, will look at a situation like a vaccine mandate, for example, compared to some other kind of political, uh, I'll use the word regulation because it's not law, and they'll make comparisons yeah. without really thinking through what that comparison means or what that comparison may infer to other people. My dad is 94. And you know, he's he's a Dutchman. He immigrated to Canada because my mother wouldn't marry a sailor. And he was a sailor, so he moved to Canada, became a land surveyor, lots of land to survey in Canada in the early 1950s. But he's Dutch people are known for telling it like it is, and being a bit a bit opinionated. And he's he's proud of that. So he says, so here we are in the COVID pandemic, and we've been now here two years. He lived through the war for five years, and he said, I don't understand what the problem is. During the war, there was no food. During the war, you burned your furniture to stay warm. During the war, you went outside after 8 o'clock at night. You were shocked. So what's the big deal about getting a vaccine? No one's going to shoot you if you don't get a vaccine. You're not going to starve if you don't have a vaccine. Well, we didn't have a choice in the war whether we were going to starve or whether we were going to freeze. It happened. It was forced on us. So, you know, speak to the people over 90 who lived through the Depression. Speak to the people who lived through wars, not necessarily the Second World War. Other wars would have happened. And their perspective will be more real, more human, and more genuine than people who actually haven't experienced a lot of trauma in their lives. And, and maybe that just comes with experience. Ten years from now, we will all have different opinions on the pandemic, what worked, what didn't work, uh, uh, what we should have done, what we didn't, you know, what we did do, what we should, what we should have done. It's so hard to say. There's ex an expression up here, when you're playing in the middle of the football game, you don't see as well as the people who are out in the stands who see everything. And all of us are in this big football game called the pandemic, trying to figure out not, not to, how to hit other people, <laughs> how not to get hurt ourselves, and where the, what the rules are, and what the whistle means, and time will tell how it all how it all plays out, and what we should have done or shouldn't have done. And hopefully, Robert, we will learn for the next one how to do things better. That's our hope with everything: is to learn how to do it better when the next situation yeah. comes along. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, well, we're about halfway through the show, Stella, so I'm going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, um, uh, you know, I want to talk about uh, the story and the impact um, on you and your family um, and uh, kind of go on from there, okay? All right, perfect. Thank you. Okay. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms 
by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guest joining us from Canada is Stella Terhart, and we are talking about her new book, Discovering Twins, No Secret to Stay Forever. Uh, you can find out more by visiting Stella's website, which is stellaterhart.com, and that's S-T-E-L-L-A-T-E-R-H-A-R-T.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Stella. So here, Robert, thank you so much for, for <laughs> mentioning my website again and where people can find more information about the book that I've written. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about um, family. Now, um, I believe you have children and grandchildren. So I do. Um, can you tell, tell us about um, just, you know, how how much the children know, um, and you know, just tell us about telling the story to uh, you know to your children and grandchildren. Kind of um, how how did it affect them in any way? Absolutely, Robert. Happy to. First of all, uh, I have a I have two older brothers, and I have a much younger sister. I'm I'm the one in the middle. And uh, uh, my sister and I, we both know the same level of information, had a closer relationship with my mother, perhaps, than my brothers. I'll be honest in saying I have no idea what my brothers know or did know. When I gave a copy of my book to my oldest brother, I haven't heard from him since. He hasn't spoken to me since October when I gave him a copy of the book. Maybe he's busy. I don't know. Or maybe it was just, how dare I expose such family secrets? Um, there's a risk when you do things like exposing family secrets. Uh, not everybody wants their secrets told or, or shared under no matter what guise of, uh, of authority an individual holding that secret may have. So that's a conversation I need to have with him, you know? So, so how come? Did I offend you? Did you disagree? Are you angry at me? <laughs> Families are wonderful and mysterious things, as I'm sure you know. My mother was very secretive about her past, and here I am doing the exact opposite. I'm woefully transparent. <laughs> uh, just, just because I feel that people need to know, uh, and time is marching on. It's now decades since these events occurred, but yet they still resonate today. They still have value today. My children have always known. They're now all grown in their mid-30s. My grandchildren are too small to know, but someday they, they will know. And my children have always accepted this as part of our past. Uh, I know more now than I did when I was when I was uh, when I was in my twenties and thirties because I discovered so much more since my mother passed away, but all of which has been shared. And it's interesting that they just take it 
in stride, almost as a matter of course. This is part of their life. They know that this happened. It has made them better, more empathetic, more sympathetic, more um, accept, um, what's the right word? They accept all people equally. It's helped shape mm-hmm. them as adults in that regard. Uh, and I think that's a wonderful gift. Something as horrible as the Holocaust can actually and has had positive effects, not that that's how you want positive effects to happen, but through every disaster in human history, there are things that come out at the end of it that one has to latch onto as as victories and as making us better. So there have been, I believe my children are better people because of what happened in my family. Uh, as I mentioned, makes making them more sympathetic and more aware and more empathetic. My grandchildren are too little. The oldest one's only 10. So, you know, <laughs> there's time for that. But the time will come. You know, the, the time will come. And as you know, Robert, from experience, when someone in your circle, be it a friend, be it a family member, when they know something and it's a heavy something, Sometimes that drives them away. Sometimes it brings them closer. Not everybody can handle information that's difficult to digest at the same level. It's happened with my brother, for example. Uh, I think he's just finding it very difficult to cope with the fact that here I am airing all the laundry, uh, but maybe he didn't want that laundry aired. But that's for he and I to work out. But families are complicated things, aren't they? <laughs> and you know, and you know, with the many people that I have had on the show who have done memoirs, um, it uh, again, I, I am always um, in admiration of the courage that it takes, you know, to you know to put it out there, you know, for for everyone to see and and comment and criticize and you know you know quarterback. You know, try and but but your brother's reaction um, is one that I've heard um, often. You know that there there will be people who just uh, family members who want to keep that their their dynamic their maybe most likely dysfunctional dynamic secret. So you know they can mm-hmm. put forth a, a, you know a, a different image, but 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 that's not uncommon. So. Um, so now, the um, other, you had your children's reaction. Were there any other, um, what were some of the other reactions, you know, from, you know, your grandmother, grandfather, or um, any other people whose lives were touched by that information? Yes. Uh, I'm glad that you asked that as well, because in my research in my family line, I found living relatives, you know, second cousin, uh, one girl who I can trace back. We have the same great-great-great-grandparents. And uh, one of the sets of twins is in her family line. And from her, I got up of this set of twins. So I uh, never knew her before, of course. Never knew she existed, and she didn't know I existed. We're the same age. We even look a little bit alike. And so now I have a relationship with this distant relative who still lives in Holland, who is directly connected to one of the sets of twins uh, that I talk about in the book. 
And I also met another lady who had a photograph of a family member, and she and I have, I have now been having discussions. And then there is a, a survivor who, as a four-year-old boy, was given away by his parents to the Dutch resistance to hide up in the farmlands of northern Holland. And he survived the war. Nobody else in his family did, not his parents, not his grandparents, but he did. So imagine, he's four years old, and he's taken away from his parents, and he's given into the, into the hands of strangers who raised him until he's seven. At the age of seven, he has no parents. He hardly has any remembrance of parents. He's put on a plane and flown to New York because he has an uncle who immigrated to the United States before the war broke out. He doesn't, have, doesn't know any English. He has no money, and he's put by himself on a plane to New York. I know seven-year-olds. I have a seven-year-old grandson. I can't even imagine it. And then from there, his uncle puts him on a plane to Australia, or maybe a boat, I don't know, to be raised by relatives who had fled to Australia before, before the war. Like, what can you say to that? And that was just, it sounds extraordinary to us, but that was ordinary for the time. What do you do with children for, who have no family who return? What you, they're now orphans. What do you do with them? And so there's, like I mentioned before, the aftermath of the war was, was, was almost the same enormity as the war itself in some regards. But I met him, so that four-year-old boy, I met him. And it's, it's a crucial point in the book, this, this one second cousin of mine. My finding him, my meeting him, and then something that he shares with me, which is just such a, a, a moment of joy between the two of us. That's a spoiler, so I'm not going to say what it is. <laughs> but, uh, so when you ask about, you know, the, the effect on other family, well, I met some, you know, from across the world, we made an effort to meet each other, and that was pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah, that that circle of family got bigger, and, and yeah, and that was a good tease for those who want to go ahead and now, I mean, it's, it's a good book, but not, now they want to buy it to find out what the answer is to that. Um, right. Well, so, um, now, what, what, um, did you, uh, grow up in, with anti-Semitism? Um, no, that, no, Robert. Okay. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I grew up nine miles from the North Dakota border. And in a very small town in Saskatchewan, an oil town, population 9,000 people. And for fun, my family would go to Minot, and my mother would be like a, a child at, in a candy store with the Kmart flashing blue light specials. You know. And there was, in our small town, there were, I remember this, this oil man, this great big Texan oil man, this great big booming voice and a teeny tiny wife. And we had people from all over the world, from every nation that you could imagine. And I went to school, every kid had a funny last name. Every child had parents who spoke a different language other than English. It was an immigrant town. Uh, there was no such thing as anti-anything. And it just, I had no awareness of this of it as a child, and I think that was a real blessing for me. 
not to have experienced that growing up, not to have seen it. We had, in my book, I, I mentioned every country, you know, it, that we had, and it was literally a United Nations in that little tiny town. And because we were two hours from anywhere, like really the middle of nowhere on, on the hot prairie, everybody had to get along. Everyone was, we were self-sufficient. You, you walked across the street for a cup of sugar or down the road for a couple eggs in a world that used to be a little more normal like that, that sadly we just have lost so much, so much of that community cohesiveness that exists when you are almost stranded by yourself with this large group of people and you have no choice but to get along. So no, I didn't grow up with anti-Semitism or racism or anything of that nature. Yeah, well, good. And, you know, and it's um, you know interesting to hear what the environment was like. It was like the environment was not conducive to um, any kind of you know hatred, any kind of um, anti whatever. Um, yes. Yeah. And so now, what the the title of the book is discovering twins. What, what, um, tell us why that title. The, one of the things that my mother said to me, and the book opens with this, and I was in my early 20s and I was expecting my first child, and my mother, completely out of the blue, says, twins run in the family. I had no idea. What twins? Where? Like, where are they? Who do they belong to? And I'd forgotten about that. I had completely forgotten about that until studying my genealogy, I tripped over a set of twins. And then, bam, the remark from my mother came back, along with many, many questions that, of course, I couldn't answer because my mother was gone. And my family has this bizarre disposition toward multiple births. And one of the things that I do in the book is I, I trace them going back a hundred years all the way through. Every year, every two years, there's a set of twins, there's a set of triplets, there's two sets of twins this year, there's three sets of twins this year. And of course, every single foreshadowing, you can, you can put two and two together, you know what happens to these twins. But um, I, I deal with that in the story as well. But the title Discovering Twins is is the one I chose because of my mother's remark in my early 20s and then my discoveries, I'm not going to say my age, my discoveries in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, it, it's funny, too, that you, know, you um, kind of, that that particular interaction with your mother um, was memorable, you know, in the, because it's like the person holding a secret given a clue, you know, but you don't know yes. the clue because you don't know the secret. That's right, yeah. And, you know, I with these twins, so I made a map of Amsterdam where everybody lived. The entire family, extended family, all lived within a, a, a five to 15-minute walk of each other. So there's no way that they could not have known each other. Two minutes you can walk to this house, and 30 seconds you can walk to that person's house, and 10 minutes down the road you're at this person's house, um, and, and including all of these families with these sets of twins. So my mom would have known them, interacted with them, babysat them, 
gone to their birthday parties, had them over to her house in the happy times, you know, before the Nazi occupation. So in my mind, I imagine what those lives would have been like, what those events would have been like. Uh, I grew up with no family, none, no grandparents, no aunts, uncles, nobody but our small family in Saskatchewan. So the concept of being surrounded by a large family is not one that I could relate to. But then my mother was surrounded by this large family, but then within a few years, she had no family. So the impact of that, the trauma of that, uh, is, is something that I also describe and deal with in this story. And I think that's also relatable because all of us have lost people in their lives. Illness, estrangement, argument, even just moving across the world or going to teach English as a second language in Japan. Uh, people, there's not a single person that you know, Robert, or that I know that hasn't experienced loss. So that's also mm-hmm. a concept that's relatable relatable in the book, is the experience of loss in, in one's life. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, the fact that you cover such a long period of time, you know, and, you know, the idea of how one's ancestors um, and, and their actions affect you. You know, I mean, how, how, so I mean, it's one of those things that it really kind of brings home the idea of what was actually what we do right now, uh, not only affects this particular moment, but also, you know, ripples for generations to come. Yes, most, most definitely. You know, it's the, what if something hadn't happened? Where would we be? Where would we be today? In our present lives, decisions that we made in high school, that we made in college, uh, affect who we are today, affect our children. And so decisions made way back in the past. I've spoken to a lot of people who had a Jewish background, who fled to the United States or fled to England, because you could see, you could see what was coming on the horizon. You really could. And they got, they got out of Dodge, you know, they got out of there. And if they hadn't, then their fate would have been the same as family members who stayed, friends who stayed, acquaintances who stayed. So your comment of the decisions that we make today, whether that today is literally today or whether the decision was like 70 years ago, has effects throughout history, throughout our families. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, before we get to the end of the show, I want to talk about music. Now, music is yeah. a part of your life, um, and I, I believe also plays a role in, in, in uh, maybe what you've learned, you know, that research in the book. So tell us about your music, you know, what you, what, what you do, when it started, that, all that kind of thing. Thank you, Robert. I'm, I'm happy to talk about that as well. I'm a classically trained pianist. I also play the harp. I am a choral director of two choirs in my area here. I write a lot of choir music, and I tend to write the words for the choir music. So writing is not something that I've just done for this book. It's something that I've done throughout my my music career. I have been the head of music at, at schools in the past, so music is definitely, you know, my career path, my career choice, and kind of my grounding, my, my center. 
not a lot of difference between composition and writing. You're still creating something out of nothing that has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end and be satisfying for the listener or the reader. There's a lot of parallels between music composition, creative writing. Uh, I love writing educational music for children. I really enjoy people learning more things in their life than than maybe what they didn't learn before. So educational music is, is a fun thing for me. I've written piano music. I've written uh, instrumental solos for every band instrument. So I was a band teacher for a while. And uh, on my website, there's various YouTube and some videos, not extensive, but there are there are some examples. And quite often, I will write a choir piece or a solo vocal piece or an instrumental piece specifically for an individual. I really like doing that. Uh, so there's, there's mem- mem- uh, remembering that person, be they alive or not alive, through music is sort of a, a nice memorial that I can give. Although most of the people that I write my music for, particularly choirs, they're here, they're alive and well. <laughs> and I'm still doing music today, even with the pandemic. I don't know what it's like down there, but up here, there's no choir rehearsals. There's there's no performances. There's nothing that's been allowed now for almost two years. So uh, that's been a bit of a challenge, but hopefully in the very near future, we can all get back to making music together again. But Dave, it's a little bit about my music background for you, Robert. Oh, thanks. Well, I, would you believe that I started the month of January with a harpist, Peter Sterling, and here I am. Anyway, wow. There has got, there's got to be, I mean, in 14 years, I hadn't had one harpist <laughs> on the show. And here I am starting and ending the show, you know, in addition to, to your piano, but um, I just think that it's interesting, an interesting kind of uh, coincidence. Um, so now this book is, is basically a legacy that, that you're leaving for your for your family and for the, the community. So um, what what is your – do you have any particular hopes or um, things that you maybe wish that the, the book would – Yes, I'm glad you asked that because I've had people very specifically tell me that this is a book that they feel should be in schools anyway, but it's very educational and in a very relatable way. And on more than one occasion, I've had people say that this should be required reading for young people in high school that are studying world history, that are studying ethics. Even studying economics, um, that would be such an amazing thing because there's no way that we can improve society without educating our young people. Uh, so if there's a goal for the book, it would be that it got in the hands of young people. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, again, down here, we're, we have a whole bunch of crazies. They're not burning books, but they're banning books. You know, they're, right now there's a... You know, a little kind of, I don't say a wave, but kind of a little puddle of um, folks throughout the country trying to ban books, you know, and, and they're, wow. they're part books of, um, that would, you know, raise awareness of any kind of culture other than a white culture. So um, I don't know where we're headed here. So. But you don't you know have that kind of thing up going on up. Oh, 
I know, who would have thought that in this, our modern, technologically advanced world, that things like that would still be an issue? What's interesting about your comment is that Jewish people are white. So let's put them, you know, I mean, oh. so how, you know, it's just bizarre to me. I look at, I look at someone and someone in the news, I, I won't mention, and how they are, they are an African-American woman, and I'm looking at them going, I can't tell. That just looks like me with a tan. I really can't tell. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I hope that we can mature out of that. I really do. Yeah, me too. Um, you really kind of need to, um, yeah, we need to, you know, just raise awareness. Just be aware and, and have that, you know, kindness and consideration be a, a part of the picture. Um, incivility, <laughs> you know, just, um, it would just make things so much more um, likable in the world, you know. And, and, you know that there's a lot less conflict would, would be would be a result. That's right, you know, and people just want to be treated fairly, to be treated equally, mm -hmm. to be treated with kindness. And yet, those things are looked upon as if they're weaknesses of some kind, but they're not. It takes a tremendous amount of personal strength to always be ethical, to always be kind, to always be a peacemaker. That takes courage and strength, and hopefully the world will recognize that, and every generation, as they learn, as they're aware, brings us closer. Yeah, exactly. So uh, my, my last question is, you know, for people listening, um, who maybe have um, are experiencing um, that uh, constriction. Um, let's see, how, how do I put it? it it's like if, if people are out there now, they, they know there are secrets going on, you know. Um, so what would you say to people who maybe are experiencing secrets or the, the object of secrets but are cautious about um, talking about them or airing them. You know, just, just the uh, what, what would be uh, the uh, let's see here. What would be your suggestion to people who are involved with family secrets? From your experience and what you discovered with your mother and her secrets, and kind of what subsequently happened. Yeah, that's a great question, Robert. And I, I think the thing that people can ask themselves is, what's the worst that can happen if somebody knows this secret? Well, uh, you could lose friends, but maybe they weren't the friends you needed in the first place. You could be alienated by family and friends, but over time that tends to soften and people come around, particularly if they start to see the value in a particular secret no longer being secret. So to someone who has a family secret, who would like it to be told, write it down even if only for yourself. I never actually intended to write a book. I just started writing things down for myself to organize my thoughts, to check the facts, and to have something to pass on to my children and grandchildren. And even if that's the ultimate end goal, that's a wonderful, great goal to achieve. And then don't be, don't be, don't be afraid. Uh, um, don't be afraid. I really believe that every family 
has stories to tell that somebody in the future will want to know. So uh, just do it. Uh, pros and cons, yeah. and hopefully the cons are bigger <laughs> than the pros, and then just go for it. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is a tough one, and you know, there people will fall by the wayside. You know, people who think differently, and then there will be those strangers who will be um, ever so grateful for for what what you've done. You know, so I mean, it, it kind of wastes itself out. You know, and and the thing is, is you're living, you know, you're living your authentic self. This is this is it. You know, and and hopefully that will. Um, destigmatize secrets, holding secrets and, you know, recognizing that, uh, like you say, what's the worst that could happen, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. So, well, I want you want to thank you for your time today, Stella. It's been a real treat. I enjoyed your book and I like the pictures. Uh, you know, as you were going through, you have uh, pictures and uh, faces and um, places and places. Um, I like that. I love going through that. It can, you know, really add depth, you know, to the story of kind of seeing the, the face of someone that you talk about. So I like that. Thank you. All right. Well, I really want to thank you for your time today. It's been my pleasure, Robert. I just, it's been wonderful to speak with you. Uh, it's a great opportunity for me, and I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity and this time. So wonderful. Thank you. You're very welcome. And everyone, today my special guest has been Stella Terhart, and we've been talking about her new book, Discovering Twins, No Secret, Safe Forever. And again, you can find out more by visiting her website, which is StellaTerhart.com, and that's S-T-E-L-L-A-T-E-R-H-A-R-T.com. And everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.